a pattern we've observed in Acts uh, goes something like this. The Spirit and the Word working inside the church will have missional impact outside the church. The Spirit and the Word working inside the church will have missional impact outside the church. We're in the middle of our emphasis on global missions, and one of my regular prayers uh, for us is that the Holy Spirit would conform our passions more and more to the Word of God, and that in doing so, we would have missional impact uh, outside of this church. When the Spirit and the Word transform us, society around us will witness and Feel the impact of God's kingdom. In Acts chapter 19, we've seen the kingdom impact not just Ephesus, but but all the residents of Asia. Uh, they, They hear the Lord's word. They witness the Lord's power. Many glorify Jesus and they renounce their paganism and they burn their magic books. And the city feels the impact of God's kingdom. And for many, it's, it's really glorious. But not everybody is thrilled with the way Jesus' kingdom impacts the city. Uh, Paul now faces some idolaters, and they oppose Christianity for how it negatively impacts their money, their fame, and their culture's gods. Before we get there, though, I want you to notice the way Luke introduces this section with a note about the Holy Spirit. So this, we're going to start reading God's Word in verse 21. It says, Now after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia, And go to Jerusalem, saying, After I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. Now, sometimes we ignore travel details like these. Uh, Perhaps they're not as exciting to us. Uh, Perhaps we have difficulty seeing their immediate relevance, but even these are the words of God, and they're here for important reasons. One is to remind you that missions is not ultimately the work of Paul. Missions is not ultimately the work of the church. Missions is ultimately the work of the Holy Spirit. All through Acts, God's Spirit stands behind everything the church is and does. He stands behind the church's conversion. He stands behind their unity and their joy and their generosity and their comfort and their witness and their gifts. And here, as we've seen elsewhere, He stands behind their guidance. The Holy Spirit is present to guide the mission. Now, Paul isn't doing his own will. What we're seeing here is that Paul is discerning God's will and then doing that 
in the Spirit. We're, we're not told exactly how Paul resolved in the Spirit, but we do know from elsewhere that the Spirit guides the church through the written word and prayer, sometimes through prophecy and visions in the, in, in the book of Acts here. That may have been the case uh, here with Paul, prophecy or a vision. It will be the case later in chapter 21. But the main point is this. The Spirit leads and we follow. That's important to notice before Paul encounters the opposition in Ephesus. You see, Luke has just outlined the rest of the book for us. Chapters 20 to 28 are an account of Paul going to Jerusalem and eventually, through a roundabout way, winding up in Rome. The shift from Ephesus to Jerusalem to Rome is of God. And Luke puts it here to keep us from drawing the conclusion... Well, everything just finally flopped in Ephesus, and so Paul had to move on. Or, it got really tense, and Paul was scared, and so he had to move on. Luke puts it here to keep us from drawing that conclusion. He resolved in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem via Macedonia, before the opposition ever even starts. He's not going because he's scared or because he failed. He's going because of the Spirit's guidance. Beloved, I've said this before, but it's worth repeating again. The mission isn't simply about doing for God, but being with God. Missions is the fruit of your communion with God in the Spirit. Missions is the fruit of your communion with God in the Spirit. That's amazing. We need to be amazed by this note here. Because at once, we were a people cut off from God. We didn't know God. We couldn't discern God's will. And if we could have discerned it, we wouldn't have wanted it. We wandered about like the blind leading the blind. And then God arrested us by His Spirit just as He did Paul. Because of Jesus' death and resurrection, God gives us the Spirit too. He's the Spirit of adoption by which we cry, Abba, Father. He transforms our will and and desires to, to want the things of God and to do the things of God. He makes us more like Christ. He leads us to seek and save the lost and to abide in those patterns of love that Christ demonstrated towards us. We need to rejoice in this. Rejoice in this, beloved. Don't miss the wonderful presence and guidance of the Holy Spirit uh, as we're reading through the book of Acts. But remember this as well. The guidance of the Holy Spirit doesn't mean circumstances will always be comfortable. Some people think that the way to know if you're really following God's will is that everything is going smoothly. Uh, No. Many times, circumstances will become very uncomfortable because of the way the Holy Spirit works. 
I might remind you of Stephen, who was a man full of the Holy Spirit. And as he declares the word of God, he's martyred. In Ephesus, the Spirit leads Paul to preach the kingdom of God. In Ephesus, the Spirit saves many, and they start following Jesus. But some in Ephesus aren't so happy about this work of the Spirit. They hate the way the kingdom of God impacts their money, their fame, and their culture's gods. And that brings us to the riot at Ephesus where we see the kingdom of God provoking idolaters to oppose Jesus' followers. The story unfolds in three scenes. The origin of the riot, its development, and its dismissal. And with each scene, a few things come to light, and so we'll stop and make observations here and there, and then once we get through the story, we'll draw some application with respect to our mission. So let's look at the origin of the riot first. What caused the people in Ephesus to rage against Paul and the church? Verse 23. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way, that is the way of the kingdom or Christianity. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. And these he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger... Not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Artemis was the mythical daughter of Zeus, goddess of the hunt. And people also thought she held certain powers to make them safe and sound. Demetrius profits from making silver shrines of this Artemis. Other craftsmen would then profit from his business. Artemis and her temple weren't some kind of isolated thing in Ephesus, that the temple was connected to the city's commerce and reputation and just general overall culture. Ephesus was very famous for this temple. All of Asia would come to visit and worship Artemis. My boys knew more about this than I did. I mentioned Artemis in passing and they're like, oh yeah, it's one of the, her temple is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Like, where did you hear that? The dangerous book for boys, Dad. Like I say. All right. So this temple was a big deal. If I could draw an analogy, consider the Dallas Cowboys, and let's pretend AT&T Stadium is like a temple. 
just an analogy. I'm just... The fans come weekly to pay homage. But it's bigger than Sunday, isn't it? An entire industry profits from the Dallas Cowboys. Hats, shirts, jackets, socks, jerseys and such, all bearing the blue star. These are made and sold for profit. And the stadium requires full-time management to clean and repair. Local breweries and soda companies get a cut for promoting the Cowboys. Local contrastors have to design and then redesign the roads and lights to support the high volume of traffic. Police and firemen work extra hours to cover the needs surrounding game day. Now pretend everybody stops coming. They lose interest for a superior joy. They stop buying the clothes. They stop watching the games. They stop investing in Arlington. The reputation goes south. The team loses funding. And then they all blame the Christians for that impact. That's similar to what's going on here. The craftsmen and business owners don't like it. Christianity is growing. People are believing Paul's message. Gods made with hands aren't really gods at all. There's one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And they hear of this God sending His Son to die for sinners. And they turn from gods like Artemis to serve the living and true God. That's a major problem. If your livelihood and your reputation and your culture are bound up with Artemis and her temple. Demetrius doesn't like how the kingdom is having a subversive impact on his little world. Notice, he doesn't even consider whether the claims of Christianity are true. He can't, he won't. He loves his money too much. You know that from this business we have our wealth. Implied is, and I ain't giving that up. He also loves his fame too much. This trade of ours may come into disrepute. Implied is, I'm not about to give up my name, nor my business's name. He also loves his culture's gods too much. And in particular, this, the goddess upon which they've built their culture. She may even be deposed from her magnificence. She whom all Asia and the world worship. Demetrius doesn't want the kingdom of God to take his money or to take his fame or to dethrone his culture's gods. So what does he do? Well, when you love money that much, and you love your fame that much, and you love your culture's gods that much, you gather the troops. You spread fear. It happened on the streets here. Now we do it with Facebook. Demetrius stirs up fear and a riot against Jesus' followers. Verse 28. When they heard this, they were enraged. And we're crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples wouldn't let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, 
some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them didn't even know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Now notice, some people get Christianity and they hate what Christianity means for their money and their fame and their culture's gods. That would be Demetrius in the story. But other people don't get Christianity at all, but hate it just because everybody else does. Listen again to what he says in verse 32. Some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion... And most of them didn't know why they had come together. It's it's just this this scene of senseless chaos. They're dragging other Christians into the mob. And it's so intense that Paul's friends don't want him to enter. Even the Asiarchs apparently has a good reputation with with these men in uh, high-ranking places. And, and even them, they, they watch out for his well-being and, and they keep Paul from entering the theater because it's, it's so intense. Uh, the crowd won't listen to anybody. Uh, Alexander is not even a Christian. He's a Jew and he's trying to get up to distance himself from the Christians and be like, hey, don't, don't put this, Paul may be Jewish and now a Christian, don't put this stuff on us because we don't believe like they do. He's trying to get up and say something. They won't even listen to him. They just get louder and shout longer. Two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. It's senseless. And the senselessness becomes even more evident by how quickly it's dismissed. It's actually pretty comical. Look, at, uh, look now at verse 35. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus... Who is there who doesn't know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you've brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them, bring their, let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there's no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. That's just funny. Two hours of just yelling and yelling and everything is just nuts. And the town clerk says a few words and everybody's like, well, all right, let's go home. But notice more. At the end of the day, who is exposed as the real problem in Ephesus? What is exposed as the cause of disorder? It's not Paul and his partners. The clerk is very clear that as far as he's concerned, they're innocent. Now, he's also, de- he's also deceived by the town's idolatry and pride, which he's 
obviously not willing to give up. He's also oblivious to the exclusive claim of Christianity in verse 37. But before Roman law, they've done nothing wrong. And even if they did something wrong, he says, hey, the courts will handle it. We've got due process. We don't do this by rioting. The real problem for the city of Ephesus is not the spread of Christianity. The real problem is the love of money. The real problem is is the craving for self-glory. The real problem is the desire to protect all of your culture's gods, which are really no gods at all. That's the real danger for Ephesus. When you live for money and you live for your fame and you live for false gods, it leads to chaos. That's the point. It leads to sinful anger and senseless rage. It leads to unjust actions against innocent people. Even more serious, it leads to opposing the kingdom of God. Which brings us to a significant point of of application here. Keep yourself from the love of money and the craving for fame and your culture's idols. Keep yourself from the love of money, the craving for fame, and your culture's idols. If you don't, you'll find yourself opposing the kingdom of God. You'll find yourself sucked into a society raging against God's kingdom, and sometimes you won't even know that you're part of it. Earlier I mentioned that people thought Artemis, you know, might might keep them safe. Safety. When you put it that way, our culture isn't so far from worshiping Artemis as well. We love safety. We feel entitled to safety. We make decisions not based on what God says, but based on fear. Will I be safe? Sadly, even some Christians will preach national defense all day long. But when it comes to preaching the cross of Christ in hard places, silence. And Artemis wasn't the only goddess. Consider uh, some of the others in Paul's day. And pay attention to what they represent. Aphrodite... Goddess of romance and sex. Is that prevalent in our culture? Goodness, our culture says, says the whole of your self-worth is found in fulfilling your sexual desires. Or finding that soulmate. It sells makeup with labels like goddess glow and dazzling doe. And seduction. I had to look these up. <laughs> Estee Lauder, L'Oreal. This is new education for me this week. <laughs> Why? Why? 
There's also Plutus, god of wealth. Think of the great draw that money has on people. People will sacrifice their marriages and they will sacrifice their children and they will sacrifice their health to have more and more and more money. Dionysius, god of wine and ecstasy. We see it expressed in the party life culture. Demeter, god of the harvest. You may know her name differently. Mother Nature. Heracles, god of strength and sport. Goodness, have you ever noticed our culture's fascination with washboard abs and ripped physique? I was getting some walnuts at Sprouts yesterday. There's this four-foot-tall poster of this guy in his shorts, and he's just chiseled physique. And it, they're selling pistachios. Eat pistachios, you'll look like this guy. <laughs> yeah, right. But there it is. Heracles, god of strength and sport. Or, if we went the sports route, consider how families sacrifice All things to get kids to practice and to get kids to games, but not spend any time in prayer or in the Word or investing in each other or their local church. Listen, the gods in Paul's day are the same gods of today, they just have different names. It could also be your money. It could be your fame, your name, your reputation. You elevate it to the place that only the true God belongs. We have to beware of these temptations. They'll turn you against the kingdom of God and they'll hurt our witness as a church. How can we call people away from their gods while we're chasing after them as well? Instead, we need to cultivate a heart for God and His glory in Christ. We need to store up treasure in heaven. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. God's kingdom is greater. And I think we can also give thanks as Christians, as believers, because this does not consume us any longer. The reign of sin has been snapped by the power of of Jesus' death and resurrection. Yeah, we have remaining sin, but sin no longer reigns over our lives. These things do not determine, you have to keep doing this. No, we don't as Christians. And we can give thanks for the good news of the gospel and and how that releases us from this desire for self-fame and and, and the the craving after our culture's idols and, and the craving for money. We can rejoice in this and live differently. Also, pray that the gospel and its effects on the church will impact society. Pray the gospel and its effects on the church, us, will impact society around us. The impact we find here in Ephesus 
I mean, wouldn't you love to see the kingdom having this sort of impact on White Settlement? Or Fort Worth? Or, or Benbrook? I mean, do you long for this kind of impact? That, that God would work through Redeemer Church and through Normandale Baptist and Solid Rock and, and Rock Creek and Paradox and the Village and Grace and Benbrook and, and Fort Worth Prez and others to impact this city that way? Do you pray for this? I was thumbing through a, a book this week. Uh, detailing the Welsh Revival of, of 1859. Thank you, Brian Walker. If you want that little book, it's by Thomas Phillips. It's called The Welsh Revival uh, in, in the library uh, there. Thumbing through that book, uh, God revived the churches of Wales. Divisions were healed. Prayer was enjoyed. Holiness was pursued. Churches uh, united in ministry efforts across uh, towns. The gospel was preached. But what I found most amazing was how the revival inside the church was impacting society outside the church. Uh, in some cases, society perceived the impact very positively. You know, take the literary institutions, for example. At one point, they were not thriving. Students just get soused every night and didn't really invest in their uh, homework. They didn't really care. And then revival sweeps through, and many of these folks forsake their drunkenness, and they pour themselves more wholeheartedly into their education. Uh, also, the coal mines. Uh, guys usually showed up with hangovers and angry at each other. And uh, it wasn't productive. But after the revival, men were showing up in their right minds and actually working together. And the managers start taking notice. Like, what's going on here? And then they hear, the, they, they hear the hymns being sung in the coal mines. Now, in other cases, you know, society perceived the impact quite negatively. Uh, for instance, one town hosted an annual fair. And normally it was full on into the, into the night. And businesses and breweries just cashed in at, at this event. But when the revival came, the fair was empty. And all of them were at the prayer meetings. And even the unbelievers were going to, what's going on over here? They were going to the prayer meetings and hearing the gospel preached instead of the fair. Also, some towns were filled with pubs where men would get drunk every night and fight. But when the revival came, these pubs suffered greatly. The revenue just dropped uh, 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 in, in each of these pubs. And folks, you know, weren't, they weren't drinking much anymore. Uh, and one town had, had 20 pubs, but after the revival, only two were barely surviving. The rest had to shut their doors. Now, whether society perceived the revival positively or negatively, one thing stood out. They felt the kingdom's impact. They felt the moral transformation that was produced by the gospel. They felt the effects of people submitting to King Jesus. They felt how the kingdom subverted the way they had always done things. Later on, there was a second Welsh revival later on in 1904. And uh, there's a story about the coal miners again. 
where the donkeys in the coal mines didn't even know what to do because they were so used to the guys cussing at them and beating them. And now they're getting saved and talking to the animal gently and, and, and not beating it anymore. Like the donkey doesn't know what to do. They felt how the kingdom subverted the way they'd always done things. We should pray fervently for the Lord to do such a work here in our city and ask that He would use you in the process. Use me, Lord, to to take the gospel into the lives of others. A third takeaway here. I think this passage teaches us to prepare to face opposition from those who hate the kingdom's values. We should be prepared to face opposition from those who hate the kingdom's values. Some will embrace the kingdom's impact. Uh, Many did in Ephesus. But many others became irate once uh, once they recognized the subversive nature of God's kingdom to their own kingdom. And the same will be true for us today. Brothers and sisters, don't be surprised if the opposition comes. Peter says elsewhere, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Are you willing to be viewed negatively by others for the gospel's sake? I think that's a real question we should ask ourselves. It's certainly what we signed up for when we took up the cross. Are you willing to be blamed for people losing business because others have walked away from their sinful practices? We're called to this. We're not called to take a bat and smash the idols and burn the temple down and start a riot in the street. No, we're called to preach Christ and to preach Him crucified and risen from the dead. We are called to endure evil patiently, correcting our opponents with gentleness, God says, while trusting God to bring repentance and change and transformation. If the opposition comes, we know how to respond. We've witnessed it in the path of our Lord Jesus. He brought others the kingdom and they opposed Him. And when He had every right to cut them down with legions of angels, He took up the cross instead and became our substitute. His death saved us. And now in His resurrection life, we have the strength to take up our cross as well. Hebrews says that he endured great hostility from sinners. Why? So that we may not grow weary and lose heart doing the same. And finally, I want to go back to the beginning of today's message. Give thanks for the Holy Spirit who is present to help and guide us in the mission. Give thanks for the Holy Spirit who is present to help and guide us in the mission. 
When we face opposition, we need to give thanks that we're not alone. God doesn't say, go do this for me and then leave us. He actually goes with us in the mission. What does Jesus tell his disciples when he knows that they're going to face opposition? He says, don't be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Uh, Or take 1 Peter 4.14. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. If you're in Christ this morning, the Spirit of God is with you. Take courage in this gift, beloved. The Spirit is more than adequate to help us face opposition as the kingdom of God advances. He strengthened Paul and his partners here, and he will also strengthen you. May he strengthen you even now as we take the Lord's Supper together. Dale, you want to lead us?